Welcome back to my podcast, From Hevel to Eternity. I'm Brian, and we are out of the Sermon on the Mount woods. As much as I know y'all love the extra-long podcast the last few weeks, we are now pivoting out of that teaching section and into the next narrative section of Matthew. Remember, the overall book of Matthew is about the good news of what Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ, accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection. So we started chapter 1 at his birth, and we are marching toward his resurrection. Throughout the book, though, there are a few distinct collections of Jesus' teachings. The Sermon on the Mount was the first big one. In chapter 8, we pivot out of that and into a section of chapters that contain a number of the healings and miraculous works of Jesus. Each of the next few chapters also has at least one passage involving Jesus, Jesus calling his followers into action usually an action that requires some sacrifice and discomfort on the part of his followers. The Sermon on the Mount ends right where it started, echoing images of Jesus as the new and greater Moses. At the start of Matthew 5, Jesus ascends a mountain to teach. Jesus' teaching then proceeds for three chapters, and at its completion we get Matthew 8.1, which says, When he came down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. In both places, Matthew uses the definite phrase, the mountain. I'm not saying that Jesus is on the same mountain as Moses was when he received the Ten Commandments, but remember that Matthew assumes his audience is very familiar with the Old Testament, so this imagery of a great teacher providing a discourse on the mountain and then descending to lead people through the wilderness would resonate with Matthew's original audience. Part of the theology Matthew is trying to present to us is that Jesus is the new and greater Moses. Jesus is not just a great teacher. He is the true deliverer of God's people. God used Moses to save his people out of Egypt, but when he was left to his own nature, even Moses fell short and was unable to usher the Israelites into the promised land himself. Where Moses falls short, Jesus does not. Jesus does what Moses could not do apart from God because Jesus is God. Chapter 4 alludes to various miracles and healings that Jesus performed at the start of his ministry, but chapter 8 includes the first detailed description of of one of the miracles we get. The first healing miracle that we're told about is of a man with leprosy, and I don't think that it's a coincidence that this is the first miracle that we get described in detail. It actually is another way that Matthew connects Jesus to Moses. Way back in the book of Exodus, right after God reveals himself in the burning bush, Moses asks God how the other Israelites will know that God has really revealed himself to Moses. God performs two signs that he gives to Moses to repeat so that the people will believe. First, he turns the rod that Moses is carrying into a snake, which causes Moses to run in fear. The second miracle God displayed before Moses was giving Moses leprosy and then curing it from his hand. If you want to read the story, it's found in Exodus chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. The first healing sign God gave to Moses was so that others would believe. And it's the same healing sign first described in detail by Matthew. Jesus is the greater Moses, our true deliverer, who performed many signs and many miracles. The disciple John says, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. This chapter continues to underline the absolute authority that Jesus has.
So leprosy is a disease that affects the nerves, skin, eyes, and nose. Today it's called Hansen's disease, and with the common grace of modern medicine, the disease is usually treatable. In the ancient world, however, it was incurable. Today we know that it's not extremely contagious, but 2,000 years ago, people were scared of this disease. And because it manifested so much externally, it was easily noticeable, and people were ostracized because of it. In Numbers chapter 12, we see God inflict leprosy as a punishment upon Miriam. God then tells Moses to throw her out of the camp for seven days before allowing her to return. Seven, the Hebrew number for completion and perfection. It was seen as this curse for disobedience that only God could cure. I don't know if this was meant to be foreshadowing, but it just so happens that through perfect obedience and complete fulfillment, Jesus reverses this man's leprosy curse. Jesus reverses the curse of death that had plagued man since Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden. Lepers were not allowed to contact with the rest of the world. They were cast away from their communities and would not be able to engage in physical touch with anyone. They were considered unclean. Jesus, with his tendency of breaking down social, cultural, and priestly barriers, steps in, reaches out, and heals this leper through physical touch. We find out in the very next chapter that Jesus doesn't need to touch someone to heal them. So this could have been an intentional action by Jesus that would have been noticed by the crowds. Leviticus chapters 13 and 14 describe the laws to be followed if someone suspects leprosy or when someone wants to declare that leprosy has been cured. Jesus ends this miracle by then instructing the man to go straight to the priests and to follow the traditional process that was found in Leviticus 14. Even when the divinity of Jesus was miraculously healing others and displaying his authority over all disease, he still advocated obedience to God's law. In verses 5 through 13, we see that Jesus does not have to be physically present to heal. He heals the centurion's servant from a distance. This passage has so much going on. First off, centurions were unit-level leaders in the Roman military. They trained the enlisted or the conscripted troops, and then they led them into battle. They weren't field officers directing overall operations. They gave orders to soldiers, and they took orders from officers. They knew of leadership and humble obedience, both of which show up in this passage. A lot of translations title this passage, The Faith of the Centurion, or The Centurion's Great Faith. And yes, Jesus is clear when pointing out the depth of this man's faith, this non-Israelite man's faith. But don't come out of this passage thinking it's all about how awesome this centurion is. Jesus is performing a miracle, a miracle at the request of a non-Israelite man on the man's paralyzed servant. Jesus then speaks with the authority of God on what the makeup of the kingdom of heaven will look like. He says that non-Israelite men and women from all over will sit side by side with the patriarchs of the Israelite people. Verse 11 says, I tell you that many will come from the east and the west and will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus then goes on to remind his audience that just being descendants of those kingdom members isn't what saves. Being from an Israelite line does not guarantee entry into the kingdom of heaven. In fact, Jesus is very clear in verse 12 that the children of the kingdom will be thrown out into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, which doesn't mean all Israelites are doomed. It just means 
that's not what gets you in the door. Only Jesus can get you through the door. The kingdom of heaven is available for all who have faith in the saving power of Jesus. Placing the fate of your salvation in other means like your heritage, your works, or your own righteousness is not going to land you a seat at that table. This isn't the first time that this has been said in the Gospel of Matthew, right? In Matthew 3, John the Baptist said, Don't think to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father, for I tell you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Even now the axe lies at the root of the trees, therefore every tree that doesn't bring forth good fruit is cut down and cast into the fire. And in chapter 5, during the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus himself says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, there is no way you will enter the kingdom of heaven, which isn't a call for us to have a better bloodline or more good works or more articulate scripture or more memorized, but rather a call that our righteousness must come from something greater. After all, Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith, is what Genesis 15 says. D.A. Carson says the authority of Jesus is a great comfort to the eyes of faith and a great terror to the merely religious. This passage is about who Jesus is and how faith in that is central to inclusion in the kingdom of heaven, regardless of any other characteristics or genes you might have working for you. Salvation is based on faith alone and Christ alone and by no other means. Verses 14 and 15 see Jesus again miraculously healing Peter's mother-in-law of her sickness. So, in the first 15 verses of Matthew 8, we see three miraculous healings, all physical healings, but of three different types of socially underprivileged members of society. An outcast Israelite, a foreigner, and a woman. The leper, this Roman centurion's servant, and a middle-aged woman would all have had limited to no audience with their traditional Jewish leadership. But Jesus, Jesus doesn't just hold an audience for all three, he actually interacts with and then miraculously restores all of them. Verse 816 goes on to describe that Jesus didn't just stop there. When everything came, they brought to him many possessed with demons. He cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. Then Matthew pulls everything back to one of the central themes of his gospel. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Specifically, Matthew quotes the prophet Isaiah in a verse describing how the Savior would bear our sickness and iniquity. The larger context of Isaiah chapters 52 and 53 describe the Messiah not as a conquering warrior but as a suffering servant one who would restore sinful man to the, a right relationship with God the Father and do what could never be done by us on our own. Isaiah says he would be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and suffer to the point of death bearing our sins. These 17 verses in Matthew are about the miracles and authority of Jesus, but all of them are pointing forward to the miracle and authority of Jesus on the cross healing us from our broken relationship with God toward his miraculous resurrection from the dead and his absolute authority over death. Now when Jesus saw great multitudes around him, he gave the order to depart to the other side. Matthew 8, 18. 
So verse 18 starts another moment where Jesus recognizes a large crowd is following him, retreats with his disciples, and then engages in a quick opportunity to instruct those around him about the cost of following him. His answers to both the scribe and one of his own disciples make it clear that following Jesus isn't lavish and comfortable. The scribe comes up to Jesus proclaiming that he will follow Jesus wherever he goes. Before we get to Jesus' response and its relevance today, let's chat about the scribe a second. In Jewish culture, scribes did a few key things. They were clerks and sort of an ancient notary public. They transcribed the Hebrew Bible. There was no Bluetooth printers back then, so copies were made by hand, and scribes were lucky enough to get to hand copy and QA all of their texts. They also played a major role in leading and reading and teaching the texts to the Jewish populace. They were the ones who went out to the population and gave a lot of the teachings and readings of public scripture. This is conjecture, but here was this well-educated dude with a fairly respected and secure future stating he'd give that up to follow Jesus. More than that, here was someone with good knowledge of the Hebrew Bible, probably including what it said about the Messiah, recognizing that Jesus had an authority whose teaching this scribe should fall under. Now, Jesus' answer is telling. He says, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus and his disciples don't have some place they could go retreat back to for rest. Following Jesus isn't about worldly security. He may ask us to give up everything to follow him. He doesn't want a following that is a mile wide, but only an inch deep. Next, one of his disciples asks if he can bury his father before returning to follow Jesus. Jesus' answer seems harsh. Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own. Now, I want to point out that some of the commentaries think this means that the disciple's father had died and he was just going to the funeral. Others think that it could indicate a desire for the disciple to wait until after his father died and then pack up and follow Jesus. Either way, it's important to note that when a father passed, that's when his inheritance got dispersed. This family inheritance was usually property, equipment, and or servants. It was a security blanket. You can look at that statement from the perspective that following Jesus and what he asks of us is more important than family, which I believe is true, but you can also look at it and mean that following Jesus right now is more important than having a fallback plan to rest on. After all, Jesus had just finished saying that even he had no place to rest his head. To follow Jesus is to trust that he is the only plan you need. To be a Christian with a fallback plan in case Jesus doesn't come true, come through is to be no Christian at all. Notice that we don't get how either the scribe or the other disciple responded to Jesus' statements. Matthew doesn't say if they hung their heads and abandoned Jesus, or if they humbling themselves continued to follow him. Verse 23 does say his disciples followed him into the boat, and I'm not sure if that included these guys. It's not about what they did, though. It's about who Jesus is and what he is calling his followers to. Jesus makes it very clear quite often during his ministry that following him involves personal sacrifice, conflict with the world, and a level of humility that is counter to our natural tendencies. Throughout this chapter, every person who proclaims a desire to follow Jesus is met with a tough question they must answer.
When he got into a boat, his disciples followed him. Behold, a violent storm came up on the sea, so much that the boat was covered with the waves, but he was still asleep. They came to him, and they woke him up, saying, Save us, Lord, we are dying. He said to them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he got up, rebuked the wind and the sea, and there was a great calm. The men marveled, saying, What kind of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Matthew 8, verses 23-27 Jesus calls men and women to follow him. So far he has displayed authority in his teaching and his healing. Here Jesus displays his authority over all of nature. He calms the storm and the seas. Keep in mind, some of his disciples were lifetime fishermen who grew up on a sea. For a storm to shake them must have meant this was a real storm. Don't think Jesus was asleep because the disciples were simply overreacting to the seriousness of the situation, like when my kid panics over an ant or something. No, this would have been a real storm. Jesus was asleep not because the storm was weak or because he got a poor weather forecast and didn't know the storm was coming. I mean, he was God after all. He was calm and collected, sovereign over what nature sent his way. Contrast this against the disciples who were panicked and desperately asking for help. Jesus' response here kind of echoes the statements he made in the Sermon on the Mount when talking about having true faith and trust in God. Therefore I tell you, don't be anxious for your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor yet for your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Therefore don't be anxious, saying, what will we eat, what will we drink, or with what will we be clothed? For the Gentiles seek after these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? That's Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, 31, and 32, and then chapter 7, verse 11. This is one of many instances where I would have been like, come on dudes, have you been listening to anything I've been saying or seeing anything I've been doing if I was Jesus? Jesus knows he's got this and he's imploring his disciples to trust in who he is also. The response of his disciples to this miracle is the same as the crowd's response to Jesus' teaching authority and his healing authority. There is this awe and amazement, this moment where they take a step back catch their breath, and are astonished at what this reveals about Jesus. We, too, need to take a step back and be astonished at this miracle. The Holy Spirit does not inspire Matthew to put this miracle in the Bible so that we can put phrases on our coffee mugs like, Jesus calms the waves of my life. No, this is a direct statement to who Jesus is. First and foremost, Jesus is God himself who can save his people. Meditate on these passages from the book of Psalms. Psalm 65, verse 7. Who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, and the turmoil of the nations? Psalm 89, verses 8 and 9. Yahweh, God of armies, who is the mighty one like you, Yah, your faithfulness is around you. You rule the pride of the sea. When its waves rise up, you calm them. Psalm 107, verses 28 through 31. Then they cry to Yahweh in their trouble, and he brings them to their dis- or out of their distress. He c- makes the storm a calm so that its waves are still. Then they are glad because it is calm, so he brings them to their desired haven. Let them praise Yahweh for his loving kindness, for his wonderful works for the children of men. 
Jesus shows the authority of God when he controls nature. He does what is described as being only something God can do by these psalmists. We can trust that he can save us from our sins because we can trust that he is who he says he is. The miracles are meant to point us toward that reality. Speaking of Jesus being who he says he is, we see in the last couple verses of the chapter that even the demons recognize Jesus as having all authority. They recognize two things about Jesus. One, he had power over them at that moment in time. Two, there was going to be a future moment in time where Jesus would have ultimate victory over them. Matthew eight twenty nine says, Behold, they cried out, saying, What do we have to do with you, Jesus, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? After Jesus and his disciples arrive at the other side of the sea, Jesus casts the demons out of the men and into a herd of pigs, and then sends the herd of pigs into the sea. Needless to say, this caught the attention of the townspeople. We see them acknowledge that Jesus is the cause of these miraculous events. However, they don't recognize who Jesus is, at least not in any messianic divine kind of way. So they came out of the town not to rejoice over Jesus, but to cast him out. It says that they begged that he would depart from their borders. Not all who see the acts of Jesus and recognize his abilities place their faith and trust in Jesus' authority. It's not enough to merely have head knowledge of who Jesus is. Even the demons have that. Following Jesus is about heart transformation. Jesus saves all who come to him in faith that he is the Son of God who died on the cross for our sins and will return again one day in true faith that is accomplished by repentance. Turning from something else and towards Jesus, not just acknowledging his existence and then running away from him. D.A. Carson states that what distinguishes saints from demons is loving obedience, not naked knowledge. Chapter 8 transitions us from a section of Jesus' teachings to a section focusing on the actions of Jesus. These actions display who Jesus is, foreshadow what he would accomplish on the cross, and include calls to action for all those who follow him. It displays Jesus' authority over disease, over family, over nature, and over demons. Because of this, his authority is worth following whatever the cost might be. Next week, we'll see Jesus return back across the sea with his disciples. Please follow us on the From Hevel to Eternity Facebook group to keep up to date on all the latest episodes, podcasts, and blog posts. If you're interested in supporting this effort, please consider joining one of our exclusive member tiers on Patreon. Unless otherwise noted, all Bible verses were from the World English Bible Translation, which is in the public domain. I think the Genesis quote was actually from the NLT Bible, so there is one quote in there from the NLT. Until next time, I love y'all.